Welcome to Heavy Strategy. This is show 11. Today's topic is supply chain management. As many of you know, the supply chain aspect of technology has been under threat lately, and we've seen many of the vendors announce that there's difficulty accessing silicon chips, and it's not just IT infrastructure. It's uh, actually a very diverse range. It started with cars, weirdly, and now it's gone much more wider into the industry. So we wanted to discuss that issue today. So Jonah, where are we going to start it off? One instantiation of supply chain issues is the global chip shortage. What makes a lot of sense is to look at why there's a global chip shortage. Most folks are blaming it on the pandemic, but that's actually just the proximate cause. Uh, there's a lot of root cause here that's worth teasing out. One of the things that leaps out at me is how heavily most of the chip manufacturers were outsourcing the actual fab of the chips. So not just outsourcing, but offshoring, because the idea is if you can minimize the cost of manufacturing, you can do that by using offshore labor, which is cheaper, and you can maximize profit. Unfortunately, that short-term focus on maximizing profit, minimizing labor costs has is one of the root causes of the chip shortage today. Yeah, there's a lot of angles to the manufacturing process. It became one of those things like, I don't want to make chips because I have to spend $4 billion a factory. I believe the number is about $4 billion today. It- it's been quoted as two, but I believe yours over over that. Yeah. I think it Anyways, varies. There's, there's, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big number. It's a big number. And as I learned recently, like making a chip doesn't sort of like happen in a day. It typically takes three to six months for from the time that the silicon billet goes into the factory. And then it gets sliced and polished and, you know, treated and then has to go. And then it goes through this entirely automated process for three to six months because it has to go in and then be etched and then washed. and So you can't just like set up a factory and then when the factory is finished, you're churning out chips. You actually have this long cycle of production line activities that actually takes months to work up. And also you've got, if there's an interruption uh, due to a failure in your automation or whatever, you can actually clog up the entire pipeline for two or three weeks. If we say uh, the desired up, Outsource and offshore is one of the root causes. Uh, uh, look at, you know, use the discipline of the five whys and ask why the hell are chip manufacturers doing this in the first place? Are they greedy bastards who just want to make the most money, which is one thing that I said. But it's also the case that what you've just described is an incredibly um, focused process that requires expertise of a particular type. Actually selling and marketing the chips is an entirely different Mm. process that requires different expertise. The analogy in my head is a company like Pfizer, which is really, when it comes right down to it, Pfizer is a drug marketing company. They're fabulous at marketing drugs. They are kind of terrible at developing them. Mm -hmm. What they do is they go buy up companies that are good at developing them and overlay this umbrella of marketing. It's interesting because manufacturing as a discipline is one thing, Marketing and selling is a different thing. And what we're seeing is the stress of having large companies be good at both, kind of the innovator's dilemma in a way at being good at both. Yeah, it is. Well, I think the thing to understand about silicon manufacturing is that to build a plant takes anything from two to five years. The the difference here is how long it takes to get planning permission because you've got to buy all this physical piece of turt to build the plant on. You can't just move into an existing building and start to use that. It actually has to be this, oh, it has yeah. to be in an area of low seismic activity, has to have access to large amounts of water 
and very large amounts of power. So there's only a finite number of places you can actually get all of those characteristics. But but none of those reasons uh, suffice to explain offshoring. It's really, truly the labor cost and the expertise and where they want to focus their expertise. The chip manufacturers have chosen until now to focus on design and not manufacturing for a whole host of reasons. And the, the main reason is mm. they can do it cheaper somewhere else, which is fine. It's just there's the law of un- unintended consequences and the well, go- global supply chain problem is one of them. As I understand it, there's also a very big aspect of scale. So as we talked about how it takes you know months for a chip to go through the production line to reach the completed package product. Up until now, there's been TSMC and the companies in Korea that make chips, uh, make the leading edge chips. So the leading edge chips are actually made, as far as I understand, in Taiwan and South Korea. And then you have a secondary production capability of the legacy uh, form factors. So when you start talking back down in 20 nanometer, 40 nanometer, 120 nanometer, there's still a lot of chips made in those. Most of those are now made in China because China's been buying up the, the equipment that's no longer the leading edge and then redeploying it to China to move the manufacturing. And both Taiwan and South Korea had strong government incentives to create manufacturing jobs. That government support and government investment in many different forms um, in Asia, a lot of emphasis on manufacturing as jobs creation, like culturally. And there's also a billionaire culture going on there in the same way that you know, Bezos and Musk play with rockets, playing with silicon chips was a thing 15 years ago, and owning a chip factory was the equivalent of that in those countries at that time. So there's a lot of historical issues here as well um, that you need to draw as to why those countries are now at the top. But now they've also been investing heavily. They've invested, I think I read when we last mentioned this in a, a, a Network Break podcast a few weeks back, uh, over the next 10 years, TSMC will invest $25 billion in uh, building new plant capacity, like moving to five, four, three, two nanometer processors or yep. 20 angstroms if you want. That is a, a, a consequential sum of money. That is not something that Intel – like Intel's crowing about investing $4 billion in, plant, right. in plants and TSMC sort of going like – Right. That's just 2022, right? Right. You mentioned the whole government investment and the Biden administration in the United States has is starting to float the idea of heavy government support for chip manufacturers. Surprisingly enough, the chip manufacturers think this is a great idea. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Free government Um, money. Exactly. There's nothing technology loves than free government money while claiming that they're a bastion of hypercapitalism. Yes. And meritocracy, yes. yes. Um, but that said, you did, in fact, highlight government support as one of the reasons that the Asian manufacturers are doing so well. Uh, were you American, would you support the idea of American investment in, in chip companies? I think that's a very complicated issue in the sense mm-hmm. that the idea behind global trade was that there are efficiencies to be made by sending the work to wherever it's best done. And if a government somewhere else decides to choose it, you should take advantage of that because that should give you a cheaper product, correct? That's the logic. But again, mm. I think cheaper is always locally optimizing, not not optimizing across the board. So Sorry, I that's, concur, that's the, but, in, but in a hyper-capitalist model, you should always we buy We don't the have cheapest, a choice. You don't yes, have a choice. You always choice. buy yeah. the cheapest product. It doesn't matter where you buy it from so long as the freight costs are, are negligible. And I think there's been a, a substantial shift, of course. A lot of manufacturing was done in China. Like There's an analyst I read a lot of, and his joke, one of his very good jokes was, why do we not need 3D printing? Because we've got China. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a, that is actually a great joke, but I mean, coming back to this, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to it. Do you mm-hmm. think it's a good idea for any given government? Let's open it up and say any given government to subsidize chip manufacturing. I do. Ultimately, I think um, having that uh, supply chain shrunk to be at least some part of it in your own country is necessary for things like defense and also for jobs. And the, what I think what we've proved perhaps not necessarily comprehensively, but to the larger extent is I believe that what we've now seen is that the idea that hyper-capitalism and global trade, unrestricted global trade, isn't going to happen. Somebody, it only takes one person in the supply chain to change their mind and say, I'm not going to play the way you want, as China has done and as the EU is showing signs of doing. You've got a supply chain collapse. And I think that countries now need to be able to say, well, okay, you can go and do that. You know, I'm going to have some local manufacturing that is subsidized and supported so that at least... Yeah, and I would agree with you, which is always the problem because <laughs> I always <laughs> arrive at some place I can agree with you. But one of the things that's quite interesting is is countries are starting to think rationally about this. At, you know, a chip supply chain is just as important in many respects as a food supply chain. Mm. And if you begin to make your population dependent on the goodwill of, of other countries to eat, uh, you've basically started a clock ticking for how long you can keep your population alive. And as you said, it only you only need one country to decide they want to blow the whole thing up and hold you hostage. The same thing with chip manufacturing. Anything that is considered important or strategic by a country really should have should have government support. And yes, everybody's going to call us, you know, rabid socialists because we said this. I have a very simple measuring stick for understanding government uh, support for a market. The way that I see it is if the government is doing something to raise the floor so that the average level of a thing comes up to a higher level, governments cannot do small things. They're just not, they're just huge institutions. And if they try to fix one person's problem, they will nearly always fail. But if they try and fix a problem for a million people on average, that will nearly always succeed. Does that make sense? It and- does. And I would I would remind folks that the Internet, the Internet itself is a government funded project. Yes. And it's a classic example. How would you get to that scale? So generally, when I'm looking at government regulations or government control, if it's raising the floor for a very large number of people, then it's generally in the right direction. Yeah, if, it solves the tragedy of the commons problem, yeah. you know, it's put by putting a thumb on the scale there. But that, you were about to say if. If they do something which raises the ceiling, which lifts the maximum earning capacity of billionaires is the simplest one, right? So if the rich get richer, but the poor don't get any 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 improvement, if the floor doesn't go up as the ceiling goes up, then the government legislation or then the government support will fail, ultimately, in my opinion. And these are the issues that we're looking for. Now, if you raise the floor and say, we're going to give a lift to local manufacturing, but we're not going to support that person. So the the trick is, particularly in politics, is where parochial politics can jump in and say, I'm going to pick this state to have that factory. And then it becomes pork barreling. And that's where I have, have have a problem. Well, and also just to be uh, pedantic, I would raise the point that particularly in the United States, but not exclusively, you have to always distinguish between federal, state and local government, because I would argue that local government actually does a bang up job of operating, not at scale. Um, and that's because they're close to the population that it's, that they serve. Now, it, I, I say does. I mean, 
could do and can do um, if it's orchestrated correctly. For example, at the moment, I reside in a very small county with under 100,000 people, and I would say our COVID-19 response was better than anything I've seen elsewhere in the country. They actually had, I love this, they actually had drive-through vaccinations and I made an appointment for 2.08 p.m. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you, as that needle was going into my shoulder, it was the clock ticked to 2.08. (laughs) I mean, that's how good it was. I, I think we can collectively agree that there is a role for government action. Let me ask you before we change topics, do you think there will be government action in the EU, in the US and anywhere else it matters? I think so. I think they've realized that these are like key industries in the same way that a car manufacturing is regarded as a key industry or weapons manufacturing for many countries is regarded as critical to national defense. Uh, the the underpinnings of silicon chips will be are now seen as something in that line, in my view. I, I sure hope so, because um, I'm still I, I'm still blown away by the fact that, you know, the super micro bug was actually discovered by Amazon, which is a really, really, really terrible scenario. I'm going to uh, take you uh, on there. That, um, that super micro bug was false. There is absolutely uh, no proof. That it ever I, actually, I will disagree with you heartily. I have friends in the research labs that have actually replicated it, found it. It, it, it did happen. Yeah. Um, it, it really did. Uh, Amazon really did find it. And unfortunately, the DOD in the United States did not, which was the primary customer of the company that uh, Amazon bought, um, which is great. But I really don't like the idea of Amazon being front and center in national security. But I do. I have talked to research labs and other hush-hush folks. And yeah, it's real. Switching gears from hardware to software, uh, my favorite topic of the moment is SBOM, mostly because it's really fun to say, which is the software bill of materials. Uh, This is something that was, this was an act that was passed in the United States back in 2014, and the Biden administration has resurrected it, um, improving the nation's cybersecurity, asking NIST to issue guidance for standards, procedures, and criteria, And the minimum elements were published just a couple of weeks ago, back in July, talking about SBOM. And my clients have been, you know, kind of very much taking this aboard and saying this is actually, you know, incredibly important. So you're saying that software should be included in your supply chain? Correct. The whole notion is that the concept of a bill of materials is pretty well established in hardware supply chain management. Uh, and the idea is let's apply that to software. What do you think about the idea? Well, I think we've already proven that the supply chain of open source software can be challenged these days. Uh, like, yes, yes. You know, we've seen malware or crypto jacking get into the, you know open source projects. And um, on the whole, that hasn't been horrible as as it could be. You think like how many open source projects there are like you know if you're doing javascript and you bring in a module and you call it and it just downloads from some place on the internet you don't know where that's a supply chain as much as a, an intel cpu or an amd cpu or an arm cpu the challenge there is is that there's so much dependency there's so much consumption of unvetted and unknown software that you you it, you're going to have a real problem like identifying or detecting or changing the culture amongst developers who are all taught that they're awesome and that they have super duper skills and mental powers and only they are a force for good in society at this particular point in time. Wait a minute. Are are you trying to tell me that software developers are not superheroes? They're no more superheroes than I was as an infrastructure engineer. I I don't think that actually negates your argument, just saying. (laughs) But but yeah, I I mean, I have I have my own issues with software developers because the, you know, the the 
the base criteria that software developers always assume is that, you know, bandwidth is infinite and latency is zero, which is never the case. Yeah. And they just sort of scream and yell when the network, when the laws of physics apply to them, which is yeah. always. Oh, and and, and but, other simpler things like, uh, you know, there's an infinite amount of CPU cycles. Storage is infinite. I don't need to optimize or reduce the amount. I'm going to store everything. Like one of the biggest pushes for the public cloud is that I can store everything. I don't have to worry about how much space I'm using. Right the way up until you realize all you space. have to pay for it. You have to pay for <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. But coming back to the software bill of materials, I like the idea. Uh, I don't like the idea of having it as a you know relatively static, I, you know static thing. I've been pushing, and I think you've been pushing for automated supply chain validation and management for a long, long time. Mm. Um, there, there are some tools out there on the market that enable automated, you know, assessment of software, particularly open source, uh, and that's not just automated once and done, but automated ongoing real time throughout the entire process. What's interesting to me is if you talk to the vendors that make this stuff, they will tell you that the biggest problem that they face is actual um, social engineering of the developers in in the open source world. Well, you know, there's also a part of me that wants to say, um, we're also seeing supply chain issues of SaaS. So you look at the failure mm-hmm. of Kaseya. Yes, yes. Right now, Kaseya was a platform that was sold to managed service providers, and then and it had like five hundred managed service. I want to say five hundred managed service providers, and then those five hundred service providers had another five hundred customers each, and something like twenty five thousand actual companies were affected because the Kaseya platform was no longer able to help MSPs to support the outsourcing contracts that enterprises had. And supply chain includes that, to my mind. Yes. And I think the way you're describing it, you know, we're both operating on a visual kind of spectrum that at one end of the spectrum is pure hardware and we're talking about chips, but migrates through software development and open source all the way out into the cloud to SaaS and second and third and fourth order SaaS, because what you're describing is not just the SaaS provider providing to customers, but the SaaS yeah. provider providing to other SaaS providers who provide to customers. Mm-hmm. And all of this really highlights the need, in my mind, uh, for, for rethinking supply chain security, rethinking supply chain integ- integrity, and redefining, frankly, what a supply chain is. And I don't know there's any answers for it, <laughs> just to be fair. I don't well, have, you know, smart answers. It's it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how this plays out because a lot of companies figure that they can just sue Kaseya, but there's no legal liabilities in technology stacks. Agreed. And, and frankly, I think lawsuits are really, really, really poor um, substitute for doing something right. And, you know, it's all well and good to say, oops, sorry, I just blew up your company, industry, country. Sorry about that. You can sue me. Um, That's not really effective. In fact, one of my colleagues and I were were getting into a little bit of a discussion about whether in the United States, the TSA's scanning is all that there is, or is there some super duper backdoor, you know, stuff that's getting done? And my comment was, no, I don't think so. I think Believe it or not, the TSA is actually the best we can do right now, uh, and it's not very good. And we're just damn lucky that the enemies have decided it's a lot more fun and interesting to go off and do ransomware and cyber warfare and attack supply chains. Um, but all joking aside, and and let's hope I'm wrong for the sake mm. of everybody. Mm. Let's for the sake of every traveler to the United States. Let's hope I'm dead wrong. Yeah, but no, but nonetheless, maybe dead wrongs a, a bad 
term. But go on, but push on, push on. You know, yeah, this is true. But let's hope. Um, But the, the the real problem here is that regardless, the attackers really have turned their interest and focus onto supply chains, both hardware and software. And can, it's a matter of time before these things get worse. Because you can amplify it. Look at how you know they compromised exactly. one company, Kaseya. And now they've got 500 MSPs. It's really quite straightforward to do because all you have to do, you can do it from the comfort of your living room uh, and your keyboard and off you go. And Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think certainly American companies and potentially global companies have really internalized the threat that exists. For a lot of American businesses, they're very military in their thinking. Uh, What I mean by that is that a lot of American companies are set up along military lines because they adopt, they hire a lot of ex-military people who are well-trained in leadership and organizational structures, and they do bring a structure to, but they also come with military paranoia. What kind of thinking, you know, if we agree that supply chain management is something that enterprises need to really start thinking about, what kind of thinking do you think is the best direction to solve the problem. Given that we don't have an answer, never let knowledge get in the way of an answer. <laughs> what's the right way to what's the right right way to start thinking about it? I think the challenge here is first is to understand that there's a supply chain. It's not just a reseller. Behind the reseller is the distributor. Behind the distributor is, you know, there's literally a middleman in every geographical region who actually warehouses a whole bunch of stuff. And then behind them is a vendor who supplies the distributor. And between the vendor and distributor, there's usually a warehousing organization who takes the products that the vendor makes typically directly from China and then puts them in warehouses around the world and ships them directly to the distributor. So that is an IT vendor never doesn't own warehouses in the modern era. They actually use fulfillment companies. Now, that's not something that you necessarily have to know, but you may, sh- I, I think it is time to start being aware of all these things that happen in the fact that a boat stuck in the Suez Canal, such as we saw with Evergreen, directly has impacts to your project if your timeline goes wrong. And the idea that, say, for example, Broadcom, because I'm in networking, Broadcom is the dominant supplier of silicon chips for switches today. And just this week, we saw Juniper Networks post results saying we've got more orders than ever. But no ability no to chips. produce. Yeah, yeah, no chips to make them. Yeah, no chips to make them. We can't get supply of the hardware to sell through, and their share price fell four point three percent lower today. It's not that Juniper is any less excellent than it was last week, or that its management is failing to keep up. Broadcom has managed to get a grip on the market on that chip, and customers can do things like uh, decide not to buy Broadcom products. Maybe look at a Marvel or a Tofino or a. Do you know what I mean? And encourage the market to buy something different. And that is what we're actually seeing. Well, and I would agree that uh, I would agree with everything you're saying and simply add to that, that your model at the moment is uh, hardware intensive, but the same is true for software where you, you know, you may be buying software as a service from a provider who is actually buying a software as a service from a different provider who is actually basing that solution partly on open source and partly on custom code. And the open source developers may be God knows where doing God knows what. Uh, So there's the same exact scenario in the software universe. And the other piece that I would certainly stress is that all of these supply chains are highly dynamic. So you can sit here and say, well, I've tracked everything from the beginning to the end. I know every single entity that's involved and what they're doing. And by the time you're finished with that sentence, the entities involved have changed because yeah. those those decisions, especially in software, not as much in hardware, but it's still highly dynamic. 
So one of the one of the things I would recommend for folks who are starting to recognize that there are supply chains here is to recognize that these supply chains are also super dynamic. So you can't use you fall back on your old approach of saying, well, we analyzed the supply chain end to end back in January 2020. So we're good. We're going to see a lot of failures going forward that we never used to see in infrastructure, particularly before. We have umpteen numbers of Kubernetes distributions. And I think at last count, there were 60 different service mesh solutions out there. We have SaaS services that are hosted on public clouds by uh, startups who are very precariously financed. They're given, yes. you know, they claim to have a billion dollars worth of valuation, but that's only because somebody gave them the equivalent of like five cents and said, it's a billion dollar valuation. It's not. Yeah. You can't play, pay your mortgage with uh, your valuation. No. Um, yeah. good we luck can all with agree that. that this podcast is worth a billion dollars, Jonah. It, it is. Yeah, it is. Right. And yeah. by the way, I'm about to call Wells Fargo and tell them to accept it. That's right. Yeah. And we'll get a, we'll but, get an advance and get uh, and get that get that money. It, it, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I know we're we're running a little short on time here, but I do want to pull something out uh, because one of the you know one of the branch possibilities that you've listed as a remediation approach to supply chain issue is buying refurbished or older equipment that potentially is not as vulnerable to these supply chain issues. What's interesting there is you'll probably see that the market is going way up for those. In fact, if you look at, you know, one of the, the jokes in farming equipment, now that they put so many chips on tractors, uh, and lock you into the vendor and lock you <laughs> yes. into the vendor for, for repairs, the value of a pre-electronic t- tractor has shot through the roof in the past yeah. 18 months. Yeah. I, think, I, think the, I think the answer there is that getting refurbished or secondhand is going to be very useful to extend the life of your existing network infrastructure, which I think is undervalued in the current market. People aren't looking at extending what they have. For me, if I was running a campus network today, I would not be replacing it with a modern infrastructure. I'd be replacing it with a, as we talked about last week, a software-defined perimeter where everybody's everybody's insecure and the campus network just becomes an internet access. So maybe what you do is you say, that's a couple of years away from my software-defined perimeter with my digital experience monitoring and buzzwords galore for new products, which are all a bit emergent and not necessarily. I, I, I would push back and say, actually, you can buy it today, but carry on. Yeah, you can buy it, but it's still a bit, early creaky yes yeah there's there's a few sharp edges that might cut cut deeper than you might want and so maybe waiting for a year or two so maybe some refurbished stuff is worthwhile doing keep in mind too that the economic recovery may also mean increasing prices as inflation takes hold so uh, there are economic issues that can drive prices up that could actually further exacerbate the supply chain because i was talking to a wi-fi manufacturer recently and he told me that over the period of two months, we we chatted, and then two months later we chatted again. He said the lead time's gone from sixty weeks to over one hundred and twenty weeks now. So Which... to get a hold of Wi-Fi six chipsets from their nominated vendor is now at one hundred and twenty weeks, and so they're Which... now switching chipsets. Which is the other thing that I would would raise? We sort of started talking about this, talking about the chip supply ch- shortage. And you raised the point that it takes years to get a manufacturing plant up and running. Uh, I think the, the big takeaway here is this is not a problem that's going away anytime soon. So if you don't have a mitigation strategy for it, mm-hmm. you know, more bro- the it in this case is not just supply chain, but actually the chip shortage, you probably won't want. Yeah. Well, when Intel says that, I kind of, you know, Intel says, oh, the supply chain, I'm going like, that's in your own interest. Your current strategy is disastrous. Sure. Your reef, your 
pivoting the company to focus on a whole new, you still want people to be placing orders and, you, you know, like, yeah. oh, the supply, it's a gift, right? If I'm Pat Gelsinger, the supply chain shortage is kind of like a gift to get out of free, to get out of delivering for, he gets a two-year free hit period sort of thing. Coming all the way back, I think, you know, if there's a couple of takeaways, and I know, Greg, we talked about this, but I cannot help mm. at least trying to tease out a few pieces of nuggets from the talk. Mm. If there's a couple of takeaways here, one is you really want to be rethinking what your supply chains are and how dynamic they are. And the other one is, if you're doing anything electronic, you want to think about how to mitigate your supply chain risks. And you need to mitigate those risks from a from a strategy point of view. Like, what does your forward strategy look like? And does the you know, if I can't buy a product, does that affect me? And the second part is, if I've got projects in flight, what happens if the supply chain, if my prices rise, or if my delivery period slip? Someone told me the other day that their Cisco product, they ordered it in uh, March, they were promised delivery in June. And that's now moved to October and there's nothing they can do. Well, and just, and this is completely off topic, but just uh, amusingly enough, um, we just ordered a couple of little sailboats from uh, a, a boutique manufacturer in Rhode Island. And they were supposed to come in June and they gave us chapter and verse, all of us, those of us who ordered chapter and verse about the chi supply chain issues that caused the delay. I'm amazed that we're actually taking receipt of them still in July yet. Yeah. But yeah, that that extended timeline, the extended timeline, the lack of availability is going to be something to really think about. And not something we've experienced. Like if you've been in technology exactly. for, 15, for just for a 15 year career in technology, you may never have experienced a supply chain problem. The, uh, I know. It's like I click on Amazon and the, the box shows up next day. What what happened? Yeah. <laughs> it's three weeks later. This can't be. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So these may be new issues for some people who are, who are, you know, well advanced in their career, but they've never seen supply chain. And if you misorder a module or a line card or a device and then have to reorder, you could be sitting on a project waiting for one project, and but you're looking at a six-month delivery of that missing item. And that is an unfun day. I promise you when you're sitting in front of the CIO, not, of course, it never happened to me. No. <laughs> oh, sure. And not that, not that we know of. You step to me all the time because I was working in Australia and there was never enough stock held in Australian warehouses. And if you didn't get it exactly right, you'd have to order it and then it would take six to eight weeks to arrive. So every mistake, this is back in the early days when, there wasn't that much. Like there was a time when networking equipment was subscale. There just wasn't that much of it around. Well, and, and I remember all the all the challenges getting it across borders as well. Let's wrap it up there, Jonah. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, follow you on the social medias and listen to your glittering piece, glittering droplets of wisdom? Uh, I wouldn't exactly call them that, Greg, but, but please do look me up on LinkedIn. I love to make contact with people and LinkedIn is a great way to connect. I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on Twitter as at Ethereal Mind. Uh, and if you want to find more about the Packet Pushes Network, we've got a network of technology podcasts across a whole bunch of topics. And Heavy Strategy is the show that you've been listening to. Thanks to Jonah. And we'll look forward to catching you in two weeks when we post.